You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as a family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. Uh, we started a new series uh, last week called Garden to City. Looking at Genesis and Revelation, we're going to look at them at the same time and separately and just take really the next several months to walk through the book of Genesis, walk through the book of Revelation together, and, and look at what God is speaking to us, both about how it all began and how it's going to end one day, how, how we're, God's going to bring all things together. It starts in a garden and ends in Revelations 21 in a city, and, and, and we see God um, doing his work all through scriptures, all through church history, all through history, and we're going we're gonna to look at that this morning. So Greg had mentioned last week that he was going to continue with chapter 3. He's going to do that next week. He's in Malone uh, today, kicking off the series um, in Malone. And I'm going to today pull out a couple of things, two or three things uh, from Genesis 1 and 2. Sound good? So the first, the first thing I want to talk about is that the Bible, as we're used to it, not, not the words of the scriptures, but the Bible as we're used to it, really is a descendant of the Gutenberg Bible from 14... Get my number right, 1436. Has anybody been to the Library of Congress and seen a Gutenberg Bible? Or there's one actually in New York City. I think there's one at Harvard as well. But the Gutenberg Bible at um, the Library of Congress, I take our Momentum students to go, to go see that. It's probably the, the first iteration, the first version of the Bible. I guess there were, there were other ones as well. But the printing press, I was taught in school that Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1436. We now know that that's not exactly true, that there were other printing presses in, in China much, much earlier than that. But, but Gutenberg himself, he was a blacksmith and a goldsmith, and he created um, an alloy, a metal alloy, and special, special ink to be able to print the Bible for the first time in Europe in 1436. And it was still a, a crazy task back then. They were, they were special order. He didn't print up a 1,000 copies and distribute them. They were special order Bibles that he would print as needed. And, and that passes down um, through the centuries uh, to, give, to give us eventually what we have in our hand or what we have on our phone, which is great as well. Um, but 180 copies Gutenberg made. There's a number of them still in existence. About 135 of those were printed on paper, and, and a number of them were printed on vellum, which I'm told, I looked it up this week, that took 170 calfskins to produce one Gutenberg Bible. That seems a bit excessive. <laughs> it seems like we can do better than that, and we've done better than that. The one that's in the Library of Congress um, now is one of the vellum, vellum Bibles. Uh, I didn't know that until I looked it up this week. I've seen it before, but to know that it's not paper, it's calfskin, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but even when you think of, say, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which were written about like 240 years ago, I was looking up this week that the Declaration of Independence that you see when you go to the Library of Congress uh, they actually believe that the ink that you can see, which you can barely see it, by the way. Has anybody been to the Library of Congress and looked at the Declaration of Independence? Numbers have, have been there, and what you see is hard to read because it's fading. And they have it under special glass and special lighting and no flash photography and only a certain amount of people in the room for humidity's sake because the, the ink that's there, they actually think, isn't even the original ink that, that's been written over or, or meticulously maintained. Because even a Declaration of Independence written 240 years ago, it doesn't last in time. It, it, it fades away. It, it disintegrates. Um, we, we know that. That's why we make copies. That's why we make, um, we make copies and copies of it. And so we're used to that. 
the Bible in its original form, when it was originally, when, when the authors of Scripture sat down to write, however they did it, they wrote on papyrus, probably, or, or leather, or other biodegradable materials, papyrus being a common plant that grows along, along the Nile. And so the materials that the Scriptures were originally written on, well, they wouldn't last super long. And so scribes came along to copy, to meticulously copy. Wouldn't you love that job? to meticulously copy all of these words. <laughs> but, but they did it faithfully, and they did it intentionally, and they came up with incredible tools. You can look up online incredible tools, both, both physical tools and then like just knowing what the center word on every page, center letter on every page should be so that they could check and make sure that they copied it correctly because it, the materials don't last. And so they copy and copy and copy. For thousands of years, scribes have been, have been copying the scriptures, giving great care to copying it. Paranoid about making mistakes because they know what they're copying is something important. And so we have these, these copies. And when I look at Matthew chapter 5, it says, For truly I say to you, this is Jesus talking, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The, the King James translates that as no, no jot or tittle. And those are, those are references to the actual, what the, the Hebrew characters looked like. That no even little jot or tittle, no, no iota or dot is going to pass away, Jesus said. And that, that's our hope, that's our faith, that's our desire. And we should be confident that what we have in our hands has been faithfully passed down to us, has been meticulously passed down to us, and also, also humble when it comes to it. We should be confident because when we look at the, the manuscripts of the scriptures and we compare them specifically with, with other ancient manuscripts, think of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and, and uh, Caesar's uh, uh, account of the Gaelic Wars or, or Aristotle's and Plato's works. Those works, when you compare the number of manuscripts and the time between what we have and when it was actually written, it doesn't even compare to what we have for the scriptures how there's thousands upon thousands more manuscripts and earlier manuscripts of the scriptures than we have of things that we accept as fact, like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. We read that with great confidence, and we should read the scripture with great confidence as well. Does that make sense? It's, it can get a little bit daunting, and, and you look it up, and it, there's all kinds of information there. But we should also remain humble, because, you know, the thing about learning is there's always more to learn. The older you get, the more you realize, I really don't know that much because there's so much to know. And we always should remain humble. But what's been interesting in science and archaeology is that as we've continued over the centuries, discoveries and observations um, have come about. Like in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one thing that's, that's interesting, I'll just take a moment to point out, the Dead Sea Scrolls, basically there was a shepherd boy who was, who was tending his, his sheep, and he's throwing stones up into a cave, an elevated cave, and he hears something shatter. That's a good noise to hear when you're throwing stones. <laughs> so he goes and he explores, and he finds pots full of, of manuscripts, and they, they look at them later, and they give great care back in the, back in the 40s, and they find, they find manuscripts that because of the cave and because of the pots and because of the weather and all of that, they were... They were preserved very well. And they found in there just thousands of manuscripts. They found in there a manuscript of the book of Isaiah that was a thousand years newer 
than the one that they had previous than we had previously. And yet when they compared the thousand year old one older one to the newer one, older one, newer one, they compared the two, they, they found that they were almost meticulously perfect, except for maybe a little spelling error in a, few, in a few of them. And so while we have these manuscripts, we, have, we discover more and it just confirms the legitimacy and confirms the fact that people have done great care to, to copy and pass down the scriptures, which is pretty cool. I love, I love the, thinking about the Isaiah um, manuscript because the, the one that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was actually 24 feet long, the manuscript, and 10 inches wide, which reminded me of Luke chapter 4. It says, The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, him being Jesus, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, Sir, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. How it just, they find, in 1947, they find these these scrolls, I'm, I'm not trying to say it's the same scroll, but just this idea, this 24-foot-long scroll of Isaiah, very similar to what was handed to Jesus and he read from in beginning his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. And so we're looking at the scriptures and looking at what's been passed down to us and examining it, starting in the book of Genesis. And we should be confident in what we're reading, but also humble, because when you study you get confronted. We, we want to be confronted. When we look at the book of Genesis, when we look at the book of Revelation, we should come at it not assuming that we know everything, because do we know everything? <laughs> but come at it with humility to be informed by, by what it says, be shaped by what it says. And as I've said many times before, uh, Greg mentioned translations last week, and I say all the time, the best translation for you is the one that you'll actually read. <laughs> The best translation, the best copy of the scriptures for you is the one that you're going to pick up, the one that you're going to read, the one that you're going to take the time in, whether it's a hard copy or whether it's your Bible app or, or whatever it is, taking the time to read it and, and know a little bit about translations is helpful, uh, but just trusting and diving in and letting the Holy Spirit speak to you. We tell our students, and I've said it here before, the first thing you should do when you open your Bible is say, Holy Spirit, help me understand what I'm going to read. Because that's what Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to do. The Holy Spirit will remind you of all truth. He will lead you and guide you and teach you. And, and we need help to understand things sometimes. And so that's the scriptures. And so we come to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I want to look at John 1 to start with. In John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, sound familiar? In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. We have to follow what John is saying here. He's talking about the Word, how the Word was God, the Word was with God. And now he's, he says, He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. Go, go later and read Colossians chapter 1 uh, to fill this out a little bit. But it says, God created everything through him, through the word. And nothing was created except through him, through the word. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. 
the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said someone is coming after me who is far greater than I, for he existed long before me. From his abundance we have all received before, gracious blessing after, after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Pretty intense passage. But what we see here, among other things, what we see John saying, and later Paul is going to say in the book of Colossians, that God created the world through Jesus. Whatever that looks like, however he did it, I don't, I don't know, but that, that's, what, that's what God and that's what John and Paul are describing here, is that through the Son, through Jesus, through the Word, and whether God spoke the Word and the Word Jesus created, and then later in Genesis 1 through 3, we see the Holy Spirit hovering. But what we see here, and what we see really throughout all of Scripture, is a relationship in what's described as God, how there's a father and there's a son, how there's a father and there's a son and there's a spirit. And we, we, we've heard these words before, and we've heard the word Trinity before, and the word Trinity isn't even itself in the scriptures. It's a word that, that we use to try to wrap our brains around what is, what is spoken of when we, see, when we think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what we see in John 1, what we see in Genesis 1, is a relationship in God. And then later, as you, as you follow in, in the book of John, you see Jesus talking about the Father in, in John chapter 5, verse 16. He says, So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules, but Jesus replied, My Father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him, for he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his Father. They didn't like that. <laughs> Thereby making himself equal with God. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to, even, how to do even greater works than healing this man. Then you will truly be astonished. For just as the Father gives life, to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. And we see it when we, when we read Jesus and we hear his words and we read the Gospels, we see this relationship between Jesus and his Father, between Jesus and God. How when we look at God, there's a relationship that, that we observe. Picks it up later in, in John 6:38. For I come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not my own will, and then later, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. 
Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you, you hear the, the relational conversation, the relational aspect that's, that Jesus is describing? If you love me, obey, me, my, obey me, my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. And so we see in, in the Gospels, we see throughout Scripture, we see in God what's described about the Creator. We see relationship. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Father, or sorry, the earth, reminder of my other scriptures. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. We see even, even in the first couple of lines of scripture, this plurality, this, this relationship, this aspect of God. And we jump down to verse 26. Then God said, and Greg talked about this last week, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Do you, do you see it? The relationship aspect of God? And then here, God's saying, let us create man, kind, us, all of us, in his image, in relationship. How fundamental to understanding creation, fundamental to understanding the scriptures, fundamental to understanding God, and fundamental to understanding you, is you were meant for relationship. Relationship of all kinds. Relationship with each other. Relationship with our creator. Relationship with his creation. Relationship. And how our relationship is meant to reflect the relationship that we see in the scriptures. The relationship that we see in God. How even, even in God, even in the supreme creator, even in the God of all the universe, even in the God who created everything, the one who is above everything, there's this preferential, this love, this honoring, even within God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, giving us an example of how we're supposed to live. Later, in Genesis chapter 18, we're going to come to a passage where Abraham welcomes three visitors. And I, I love that passage. It's both mysterious and yet enlightening how Abraham sits and he has a meal with three visitors who the scriptures tell us is God. God and, and these three show up to Abraham and sit around a fire with him. How crazy is that? <laughs> but we see this, this relationship. And we know that the relationship is also the goal. Later we'll come to Genesis chapter 12 where God is talking to Abraham. And he's saying that Abraham, through your family, in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. 
and all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. How the desire, even in God revealing himself to Abraham and revealing himself later to Moses and revealing himself in different ways to David and revealing himself to us in the scriptures, the goal is for relationship so that all the families on the earth will be blessed. And the goal in Revelations 21, which we'll come to much later in the summer, Revelations chapter 21, I heard, this is John speaking, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. His home is among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And jumping down to Revelations 21 and verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the city, temple being the place where, where a deity resides, where God resides. I see no temple, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. How the goal is for us to have perfect relationship walking with God. It's about relationship. It's all about relationship. And we need to remember that when we're reading through all of it. Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, it's about relationship. In creating, God sets creation free. Greg talked a little bit about that last week. We, as Americans, and I'm a proud American, as Americans, we value our freedom and we reject sovereignty. <laughs> Fundamentally, Declaration of Independence. We've rejected an outside power telling us what to do. That, that's a core of what it means to be an American, and I like it. <laughs> and you should too. Even our Canadian friends, sorry. <laughs> There's a few in here today. Thank you, Jesus. The border is open. Yes. <laughs> but as Americans, we reject outside power, outside control, outside sovereignty, which, which really is, is contradicts the very notion of Scripture, the very notion of creation, the very notion of a Lord who governs and Scripture who defines. But I wanted you to notice something, going back again to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I want you to notice something in, in here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. I want you to hear, just for a moment, the word let. Because it repeats 11 times in Genesis chapter 1. How God says, let there be light, and there was light, and the light just did what light does. And then you come down to verse 6. Let there be space between the waters. Verse 9. Let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place. Verse 11. Let the land sprout with vegetation. Let the, let the vegetation just go for it. It, it describes how seed-bearing plants producing after its kind, and God just says, go. Let the waters, verse 20, let the waters swarm with fish. I love that word, swarm. It just... Let it go. Like, let them, let, it, let them do what they're going to do. Verse 22, God's, God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Verse 24, Let the earth produce every sort of animal. Let the earth produce. And, for, and finally, verse 26 through 30, Then God said, 
Let us make human beings in our image to be like us, and they will reign. God created human beings to reign, to be free, to do. Over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given you every plant, green plant as food and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And this is what happened. As I was reading this passage this week, I just got caught up in this idea of God creating and giving freedom to creation. And and we know, Greg talked about last week, and we're going to talk about it next week as well, that we're given the freedom to choose. But inherent in creation is freedom. God sets it all in motion and gives freedom. Before the law came in Exodus, there was freedom. But freedom also has parameters. It has boundaries, appropriate parameters and boundaries. I know I'm not a scientist, but when I stand at the Baltimore Harbor and see the water just at the same level, and I looked it up this week to make sure that it's not controlled by a dam somewhere, and in Baltimore it's not controlled, like the St. Lawrence, it's not controlled by, by a dam or a levee, or I don't even know what a levee is. But, but we, when we look and we see the, the water just staying consistent, there's a boundary marker. Even in Genesis 1, when God is describing the creation of, of the skies and, and the water, how he, how he sets them into boundaries and lets them only go so far. And you ever stand at the ocean and just watch it come in and go out? And I, I love standing there for hours and seeing the tide gradually come in and later coming back in the morning and seeing the, the tide go out or vice versa, depending on what coast you're on. But the, I don't even know if that's right. Anyway, this idea of there is God creates boundaries in creation. So there's both freedom. He sets it free. But there's also boundaries, and we, and we know this. We know that freedom doesn't mean we get to do whatever we want to do. <laughs> I have a quote in your notes. True freedom is possible only when we live within, only when we lie within God's boundaries, according to creation and relationship. We know that freedom does not mean I can do whatever I desire. I can follow whatever impulse. Or I can, we know that. We know that our freedom is bound by relationship, bound by how it affects other people, bound by how it affects creation, bound by how it affects God. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, we see both relationship, and I want you to hear that today. And we also see freedom, but that freedom is bound up in relationship. And how everything that we do affects everything else around us. Every decision that we make has impact. And we need to be conscious of that. You know, going back to the beginning and what we're doing, I, I think is important. We see so much in Genesis, and we're going to unpack so many, so many thoughts over the next several weeks. But going back to the beginning is important, and then the laws come, the rules come, the standards come, and really what we see in God laying out, even in the Ten Commandments and the law that's given in Exodus, is God just trying to show them how to function with each other. 
how when your goat falls or, or your ox falls into a hole, what to do about it, or when somebody accidentally something happens, what to do about it. And there's all kinds of rules and laws, but those rules and laws ultimately are about relationship. Because as Jesus said, remember, as Jesus said, he sums it all up. One of my, one of my favorite passages, Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. Jesus says, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets. When Jesus says that, and I've, I've talked about this before, when Jesus says the law and the prophets or or elsewhere it says the law, the prophets, and the writing. He's referring to the Old Testament. That's shorthand for what we call the Old Testament. So when Jesus says the entire law and all the prophets can be based on these two commandments, and we know them, you can go and read more in Matthew 22. Love God, and I'm summarizing, and love each other. All that's written in the Old Testament, all that's written in Genesis, all that's written in Exodus, all that's written in Leviticus, and on and on and on, and all of creation, all of it can be summed up in love God and love each other. How God sets us free, and, and we, want, we want to recognize that God has set us free to do and to rule and to reign and to shape and to design and to create and to have art and see buildings and go from a garden to one day to a city. And look in, look in Revelations, when we, look, look ahead, chief, look ahead. In Revelations, it describes how big the city is and it's like the size of the whole East Coast in Revelation, it's huge. And I, I love even going down to, to New York City, you ladies are gonna be there this week, and you walk into Central Park and you don't even know you're in a city anymore, oh, except for the noise. <laughs> it's better up here. But God sets us free to rule and reign together and to create, but to do so in the context of relationship. Some Jesus sums it all up. The, all the law, all the demands of the prophets are based upon these two commandments. So I wanna leave you with a, with a couple of questions and I have those questions at the bottom of your handout. The first one is, what are you doing that is limiting your freedom? What practice do you have in your life that's limiting freedom? This could be so many different things. Debt limits freedom. Having financial debt limits freedom. Having not, take caring, not taking care of your body limits your freedom. Not reacting well to your spouse limits your freedom. How we treat each other how we care for our homes, how, how, we, how we do everything that we do. What are you doing in your life that's limiting freedom? Addiction limits freedom. Crime limits freedom. It's about freedom in relationship. Secondly, are you conscious of and informed by your creator. In, in your day-to-day -day life, are you conscious of your creator? And informed by your creator. We're spending the time, we've taken two weeks now looking at Genesis 1 and 2, just to look at this creation, narrative, this creation passage that's meant to inform us, meant to show us how to live. Is it affecting you? Does God 
direct you? Are you directed by an outside sovereign? And lastly, do your relationships reflect your creator? Do the relationships in your life reflect the relationship that we see in our creator? In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how they are with each other, how they interact, how they love, how they support, how they honor and, and just work together. Do you reflect that in your life? Because you should. We should. I'm challenged by that. Those are my three questions to leave with you, uh, to, to reflect on, to ponder, and just let them, let them sink in. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.